It's good to be here with you guys. So I had, a, I had an interesting day yesterday. Spent a couple hours playing uh, football in the snow. And I think through that process, I, I must have like grown my muscles because I ripped my shirt <laughs> right on the elbow. But unfortunately, my team lost, as we usually do, due to my poor quarterbacking skills and uh, consistent ball hogging. I think probably hold on to it too long, make my blockers block for about 30 seconds. Um, but yeah, we had a blast yesterday playing, playing football. Uh, hopefully next time we'll have even more people. I'm looking at you, LaVon. I need you there, man. But yeah, we had a great time. Um, you know, recently, just a couple weeks ago, there's a, there's a brother who I, who I very much appreciate, who decided to put me on blast on stage. And uh, he was talking about the image of God, and he said that certain people who look like me are not in the image of God. And he, he had a rather embarrassing picture of me that he put up on there. So we all have images of God, right? We all have ways that we see God. I recently had the campus do a little exercise, and they wrote down like a picture of God that they think of when they picture him. And Heather actually mentioned it, kind of the old guy with the beard was pretty common. Um, but some of us have a, have a picture of God that's kind of like this, uh, <laughs> right? He's, he's kind of creepy. He's a little bit shiny, a little bit dazzly. Uh, and, and he likes to watch you and, and, and kind of be your policeman, right? Um, that's, that's Eli, so I got you back, bro. He's preaching in a couple weeks, so this might just keep going. I don't know. <laughs> But right, we all have these images of God, and so that's why we're studying out knowing God and having a right image of Him and a right view of Him, and that's what we're going to be doing for the whole year. And last week, Joel did a great job talking about Genesis 6 through 9, which is the story of Noah's Ark and the flood, and he really showed us how God deeply cares about each one of us because he looked at the earth and he saw all this evil, and he, he had to do something about it because of his love and his justice. And so God, he, he wiped all that out, and he started over with Noah and his family because God wanted people to be righteous and to love each other. Um, and so God provided newness of life for the whole world. But unfortunately, God's solution didn't stick. And before we talk about that, um, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, wow, I'm so grateful for the family here and just for the idea of having some barbecue after this and just enjoying the fellowship. But I'm so grateful for your word and I pray that this morning as I speak, you would speak through me and that people here would know your faithfulness and be called to respond in turn. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So today I'm going to be preaching on Genesis 12 through 22. So we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, but before we do that, we kind of need the background. So after Genesis 9, Noah and his family, they kind of fill up the earth with all their descendants. And then in Genesis 11, everybody speaks the same language because they're from the same family. And they decided to build a tower. Okay, They wanted to build a tower all the way up to heaven. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but my intuition, they wanted to dethrone God. And so what God does, because that's not good, God actually just confuses their language he divides them up and he scatters them all over the earth. And so that's why I don't speak Chinese, unfortunately. Um, but you see that God did all this in order to protect his holiness. Because people were united in evil yet again. Just like in Genesis 6. 
People wanted to do evil, and God had a solution. But the problem is that God made us to be together and to be one. And so we'll see in the coming chapters how God sets it up so that He can solve the problem that we made by, be, by creating us divided, right? And then He shows His covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Okay, so God shows His covenant faithfulness because He is the covenant initiator. He's the covenant instiller, and He calls us to be imitators of His faithfulness. All right, so briefly, what is a covenant? Um, you know, this is kind of a technical word, I guess. We don't really use that nowadays. Matter of fact, it sounds kind of creepy and like a little bit about like some witch coven. But that's not what God's talking about, and that's not what this is about. A covenant was a pact in the ancient world that was incredibly serious. Okay, it was so serious it got a little grotesque sometimes. And they would even, in order to seal this covenant, they would take a knife and they would cut their arm and they would drink each other's blood. Uh, yeah, ancient people are kind of weird sometimes, but they were deadly serious about their covenants. You do not break the covenant. Now, they kind of got away from the whole drinking the blood because it was so strange. Um, but the word for covenant in Hebrew is berit, which means to cut. So that's where we get the whole word. Um, and so they started doing other sorts of ways to show their faithfulness to the covenant that didn't involve cutting their own arm but they would sacrifice animals. And we'll see some of that as we read later in the text, um, how that comes out, how that culture sort of informs how God interacts with us. But if you turn to Genesis chapter 12, okay, this is my first point. God is the covenant initiator. Um, So I have a show. We'll read this in a second, actually. I have a show that I really love. Uh, It's called Supernatural. Okay, it's got lots of issues. Uh, You know, I mean, it's gotten weirder and weirder over the years. But the first five seasons are really, really good. And one of the main issues in the first five seasons, there's these two guys named Sam and Dean. They're the main characters. And this whole time, they want God to be involved because the world is literally ending and Satan is going to destroy everything. And they're very upset about this and they're looking for God, literally trying to find him physically. A very strange solution. But here they are and they pray to God and they don't hear an answer. And they look for him and they can't find him. And eventually they give up and they just start doing what they were doing trying to fight against Satan. Well, it turns out at the end of the first five seasons that God was actually orchestrating the whole thing, and they had no idea. Right? They thought that God had abandoned them, but they were the ones who abandoned God. Uh, Actually, throughout the story, God brings them back to life four times, and they didn't even know it because he erased their memory about it. So literally, they blew it so bad, God had to resurrect them, and they didn't even know it, and they were blaming him for the whole thing. It's actually kind of embarrassing for them. But... That's the story. And so we get some of this going on in in our lives, right? We start to blame God. Where are you at, God? What's your problem? Why are you not faithful to me? I've been faithful to you. I'm doing your work. And so this is the problem in some ways that that I'm going to seek to address, okay? So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here God shows up to this guy named Abram. And the Bible doesn't tell us who Abram is. Literally, we don't know anything about him except that he's from Iraq, and he's got a dad, and his dad's name is Terah. (laughs) That's the only thing we know which I'm glad he has a dad. That's good. But we see that, that 
we have no idea who this guy is. God just arbitrarily chooses him. And he chooses him to be a blessing to all nations. All right, so we just saw how the nations were in trouble. They were divided. They were united in evil, and then they were divided because of their evil. And so there needs to be a solution. And God, in his great love, calls Abram. Okay, so Abram, prior to this point, we have no indication that he knows who God is. Abram, in all likelihood, served other gods, other you know, so-called gods. He has no idea who God is, and yet God calls him. And so God calls him to move. It says in verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So God says, well, I need you to move from where you're from, southern Iraq, all the way to Israel. Now, in our mind, that's not so far. That's, you know, it's a short drive. Uh, you can just cut right across the desert. Well, back in the day, they didn't have cars. They certainly didn't even have national boundaries. So good luck. Nobody knows where you're from. You just show up out of nowhere. There's no passports. There's no planes. There's no trains. At best, you have a horse, and I guarantee you Abram did not have a horse because they didn't have horses yet. So this guy had to walk from essentially from, Israel, or from Iraq to Israel, but he couldn't go in a straight line. He had to go all the way around through <coughs> Turkey because he had to follow the water or else he would have died. So he goes north, and this would be hundreds of miles on foot, all because God told him to. Okay, literally the guy doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know what the point of all this is, but he obeys. And he does it at great personal risk. It's not like he went there and everybody welcomed him with open arms. We're so glad you're here, Abram. We've been waiting for you. He's just an interloper that just shows up, wandering around with no home. And he's not afraid to do that. You know, sometimes we hesitate to drive to church. It's 10 minutes away. Not for all of us, but you know what I'm saying. Abram walked thousands of miles just because God randomly asked him to. Okay, so God did not choose Abram because Abram was so special or so excellent. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. So now he's talking to Christians, right? This is the call of Abram. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, our culture prides itself on its strength, on its military might, on our riches, on our democratic ideals, on our regard for human rights. We talk about all these things all the time. Well, I don't know if we do, but the media does. Culture does. And the Bible says that God did not call the people who thought themselves that way. God called the people who were weak and foolish and even stupid. 
Why? To shame those who are strong. The world is full of people who want to boast about themselves. I have this temptation all the time. Look at me. I'm so great. I got a ripped shirt because I'm, you know. Or, like, look at me. I, I live in a great country and I love it here. Or whatever. And you talk about all these things you want to boast in. And God is like, you have no right. I chose the weak and the foolish. And even those who think they're strong, they're not strong compared to God. And they have no place to boast. And not only that, God did not make his covenant with the church because we're so holy. We can sometimes have this idea or this temptation that, well, I go to church, I must be one of the good people. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you're one of the messed up people like everyone else. And so that's why you go to church. <laughs> and much more than just go to church, right? That's why we follow God. That's why we go when he calls us. Okay, so God initiates the covenant, not because of works of righteousness done by us, not because of how smart we are or how handsome or how clever, but for precisely the opposite reasons. But you know what? I want to give you guys an example of how this can, this can go really wrong. Um, because God can use our weakness to build up our faith in Him, and Satan can use our weakness to make us doubt God. Okay, so when I got baptized, I got baptized when I was 16. I've told you guys this so many times, and it was nine years ago, and I was so happy. I was floating on cloud nine. I was like, thank God, I'm one of God's people. And then I uh, went and took a nap, because that was the best. And I never take naps, but this time, I did. And everybody was having a party, and I was sleeping on the couch. But I woke up. I had to go to the bathroom. Okay, so I go to the bathroom. I come out, and this brother who was hosting, he goes, he, he goes in after me, and he kind of looks at the toilet, and it's kind of messed up. Um, because I, I shifted it around a little bit, because it wasn't flushing. And so that actually broke a seal on the bottom. And so this brother goes, his name is Dan, he goes, hey, Grayson, I just want to know, did you, uh, did you mess with the toilet? And I was like, no. I didn't touch it. Well, that's false. And he didn't even challenge me on it. He trusted me. But I lied right to his face. I said, no, I didn't touch that toilet. And so you see that God didn't choose me because I'm so honest yeah. or so great. But he did choose me. And so we can have great confidence in him. Okay, but look at this in Genesis 15. So we're skipping a few chapters. So there's some adventures that go on. Abraham actually fights a war. Uh, and he receives a blessing from the king of Salem, which became Jerusalem. Um, and we're not going to get into the details of all that stuff because that's not what we're focused on today. But look what happens in Genesis 15. So perhaps Abraham, because of his many mistakes, he makes a lot of mistakes in these chapters. He lies about his wife and says that it's not his wife several times. Um, he's fighting wars. I don't know if he was supposed to be doing that or not. It doesn't say. But God does something incredible on behalf of Abram, perhaps because of how he's feeling. Look at this in verse... Oh, one. We're going to read a good chunk here. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven 
and number the stars, and if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring breathe. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here's Abram, right? And he's feeling afraid. That's why God says, fear not. Abram is afraid because Abram is very old. I believe at this point he's at least 77 years old, maybe a little bit older. And he has no son. And back in the ancient world, trust me, having a son was such a big deal. There was nothing more important. You know, in our culture, it's like, ah, whatever. I don't really care. Back then, you needed to have a son because you needed someone to inherit your wealth and your blessings. And Abram had received this covenant from God. Through you, all the, world, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abram's sitting there like, I'm old. Who's going to inherit this blessing that I received from you, God? Who's going to receive the covenant? And he's kind of hopeless about it. Right? It makes sense. He's never had any sons or daughters. Uh, his wife is also very old. So she's infertile. He's infertile. And he's struggling with that. And God comes to him and he reassures him and makes an unbelievable promise. Okay, but God doesn't just do that. Okay, if we keep reading, um, it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, that is southern Iraq, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So again, Abram's experiencing some doubt. He wants confirmation. He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So real briefly, Abraham has cut these animals in half, and God says, Know for certain that your, answer, your descendants will be enslaved in a land not their own. Okay, and we read about this in the book of Exodus. Okay, so first of all, God knows what he's doing. You know, they were enslaved for 400 years. And God said, but at the end of it, they're going to come out with great possessions. So somehow through the slavery, they will actually be blessed. Okay, so that's just incredible. It's just a side note, okay? So it says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers, that is, you'll die, in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Even with this, guys, the Amorites were the people who lived where the Israelites needed to be. And they were extremely evil. But God gave them 400 plus years to repent. Okay, he gives us all probably more time than we deserve to repent. Amen. So God knows that the Amorites need this opportunity to repent. And they don't. And so they get judged for that. But look at this, okay, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So here God comes to Abram. And we can be confused about what in the world is going on here. Okay, we've got some animals and he chopped them in half. And he laid them out, but he didn't cut the birds in half. I don't know why he didn't cut the birds in half, but he didn't. Okay, and he laid them out. And then Abram goes to sleep, 
And it's like a freaky sleep. Like great darkness falls upon him and he's, it's not fun. And then a flaming pot and a torch pass through the pieces. So I want to explain to you guys what actually happens here. So here's the pieces, right? In the ancient world, remember, a covenant means to cut. And so instead of drinking blood, they started to do this thing where they would cut animals, lay them out, and you would pass through the animals as a sign of the covenant. And so God lays, or Abram lays out the animals for God, but he doesn't pass through the animals. God passes through the animals to show Abram this. Whatever happened to these animals will happen to me if I do not keep my word. God, in an utterly ridiculous move, says, if I don't keep my word, I, the only one who is immortal, will die. Now, of course, we know that didn't happen. But what a powerful promise. And Abram, I'm sure, is feeling much better about the situation. Well, God made a covenant with me. I feel so much better. And so God is the covenant instiller. Okay, so God did this, and this is the only time this happens, where God passes through these pieces like this in the scriptures. It's an amazing thing. In Hebrews 6.13, it speaks about this. And it says that God swore by himself. It's okay, we don't need it. God swore by himself because there's no one greater to swear by. So when you make an oath, you typically would swear by God. I swear, right? We take the Bible and we say, I swear to tell nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, God said, so help me God, I will do this. <laughs> and so God swore an oath by himself. This is an immensely unique situation. And it shows an incredible humility that the creator of the universe would bind himself to a person like Abram this closely. And it shows incredible love that he so desires all nations to be blessed. Not just America, not just South Africa, all nations. That he would do this and bind himself that I will die if I don't keep my word. And I don't even know how that's possible. Okay? And so God actually does this type of reinstilling of the covenant, not with the passing through the pieces, but he comes to Abraham four times to say, I want you to know that I'm going to keep my word. And so how do Abraham and Sarah respond to God's repeated promises? Turn to Genesis 16. So, in Genesis 16... Uh, well, I'll just say this. Abraham and, and uh, Sarah decide to get together and fulfill God's promises on his behalf. And so Sarah has this servant, and she says, Abraham, why don't you just sleep with my servant, and she'll have a son, and then we'll have a family. Uh, that's not very faithful to your wife, but Abraham agrees and he sleeps with her, and she has a son. Uh, this is not a good decision. It really doesn't show trust in God. Okay, so Abraham just had this amazing promise from God, and he goes, well, I, I guess i gotta, I got to take matters into my own hands. You know, often we feel like we have to do this thing when it's really God's work. All right, and then in Genesis 17, Abraham laughs at God because God says, I'm going to give you a son. He thinks it's funny. Because he's so old. Okay, not very trusting either. And then in Genesis 18, okay, we'll read this one. 18 verse 12. Sam's lead. And says, uh, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, 
After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. That's the end of the interaction. So first of all, Sarah is following Abraham's lead. Not very good leadership. But secondly, she's being logical, right? I'm old. I'm worn out. How am I going to have a son? But she forgets that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Matter of fact, as we find out, God made a virgin give birth to, and he gave birth to a guy named Jesus. Amen? But here's the thing, okay? They're doubting God, and God responds with this incredible graciousness that he doesn't say, how dare you laugh at me? He says, why did you do that? You should trust me. You know, it makes me think about how some of us, even how I, when I lied to Brother Dan, how we treat God. Right? We tell him, oh, I love you, I believe in you, I trust you. But when we actually have to choose, we mock him. When push comes to shove, we think that he's a joke. And God is incredibly gracious to us. But guess what? You should be afraid if that's where you're at. Because God is not a God to be mocked. And despite his graciousness, there is justice and there is righteousness. And he will not be mocked forever. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For a man reaps what he sows. And so we cannot lie to God about the state of our lives. He's not deceived. So why do we do this? Just be honest and come before him and confess. Yes, I laughed and I'm so sorry. And change your ways. Right? But God is not like us. And so he doesn't always respond the way we would respond. When people laugh at me, I always get indignant. And I always bring the, you know, the wrath. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. And God doesn't do that to them. Instead, he just graciously reminds them of the truth. And you realize, in the context, God is literally sitting in their tent eating lunch with them, and she's laughing at him. I've never had lunch with God like that, but someday I hope to, and I hope I won't be laughing. Except for enjoy, okay? But not in a mocking sense. But the question is, do you have faith in God's promises? The Bible says that in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. And I want to give you an example. Do you truly believe that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, do you truly believe that you will be resurrected at the last day if you trust him and if you follow him? I truly believe that. Now, I'm not saying I always act in accordance with that belief. I'm imperfect too. But if you truly believe that, guess what? Things like death shouldn't scare you. Come on, bring it on, Satan, what you got? You going to kill me? I'll just come back to life. If you truly believe God's promises, things like moving thousands of miles wouldn't scare you. Now, I'm not saying it's so horrible to be afraid, but the most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Right. And so we need to trust in God's promises. Amen. And this should produce in us an immense joy and sacrificial love for others. 
You know, we all only have one life to live. Caleb was showing those pictures, and I really appreciated those pictures because we have to appreciate every moment. And the other day I had a really, really great moment where I was walking down the stairs. On campus there's these like wood stairs that go up the hill. And I was walking with uh, Wyatt, a buddy of mine, and, and uh, as we're walking, I'm talking to him, and all of a sudden this little, I don't even know what it was. It wasn't a mouse. I have no idea. It was just this little fuzzy brown thing. came walking out onto the stairs, and I saw it, and I didn't want to crush the little guy. So I missed the step, and I almost fell face forward, down like 100 steps. I legitimately could have died. And uh, thank God he gave me supernatural balance, I think, because normally I don't have it. And I didn't fall, but I tell you what, I could have died. I actually think that. I thought to myself right after that, man, you could have fell on the stairs and broke your neck. And I didn't. The point is, we only have one life to live. Sometimes we act like, I'll just get to it later. My relationship with God, I can sideline that. Listen, you don't know if you'll live the rest of today. I might die right now from a heart attack. Now, is that likely? Maybe not. I don't know. I don't control any of that. So we have to take this so seriously. We only have one life to live. Don't waste it. Okay, so God is the covenant initiator, and he's the covenant instiller, and he's so faithful to his promises. Matter of fact, Abraham does have a son, and his name is Isaac. And Abraham had a son at the age of 99. That's an old man to be having a kid. And I'm pretty sure his wife was... Similar age. I don't know exactly how old she was. Immensely old. And God made it happen. And the Bible even speaks about Abraham's immense faith through this in Genesis chapter 22. Okay, so our calling in all of this is to imitate God's covenant faithfulness. Because if we've made a covenant with God, God will be faithful and we need to do the same. Okay, so Genesis 22 verse 1 through 19. We're going to read all this. I just think it's so important. It says, after these things, so Abraham's had his son. Um, There's been some obstacles, but he had a son. And I can imagine, I don't have any children. I can imagine how much love he has for this son. He's been waiting for 99 years to have a son. And he finally had one. I'm sure he was a beautiful boy. And And God says this to Abraham. He says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God says, hey, you know that son that I gave you? I want you to kill him. Pretty frightening. Matter of fact, I would be like, yeah, forget you, dude. I don't, why would I ever do that? Look how Abraham responds. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. 
He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So just imagine the emotion here. I, I, I don't even know if I can. Here he is, he's like, Isaac has some idea of what's going on here. He's like, well, we have wood, but we need a lamb. This is what we always do. We need a lamb. And Abraham knows, well, you're the lamb. Right? So there's probably a lot of emotion. You see all this language, my son, my father. There's just so much love that's going back and forth here. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So, here's Abraham, right? He raises up his hand. He's going to kill his own son. And then God, in that moment, provides for him a ram. Not before. Turn to James chapter 2. Now, we can feel like this is awfully cruel of God put them through all that emotional distress. But I want you guys to consider, and perhaps there was a lot of that with Abraham, the immense faith that he had. When he even told, God never told him, I'll provide a, a lamb, but he told his son, God will provide. And so Abraham knew the character of his God. In James chapter 2, verse 20, actually we'll start in verse 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, <laughs> that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You know, a lot of times we can think to ourselves, I believe in God. I believe that God is one even. I don't even believe in many gods. Therefore, I'm fine. I've kept the covenant. But even demons believe that. What showed that Abraham was faithful was that he raised up that knife. And so it was an example for us that we would have the same type of faith that would say, God, 
I trust that you will provide. I trust that you are faithful to your covenant, that this is the son whom you promised to bless the world through. And so I'll do whatever you say. Elsewhere in the Bible it says, Abraham reasoned that God would raise him from the dead. So even if there was no lamb, Abraham was like, well, God's going to bring him back. And it says he did not waver in unbelief. But Abraham's faith would have been useless if he did not obey. We can make it seem like faith is everything, but faith is nothing without our deeds and our obedience. How do you respond when God tests your faith? How do you respond when things seem dark? Do you put faith in God's promises or do you retreat to human reasoning? Are you refined by his testing or do you show yourself to be unfaithful? And so I want to close out just by summarizing that God did not choose us to be a part of his people because we were so great. He did not choose us. Uh, he, he did not choose us because we were so confident. He's the one who gives us confidence because he's so patient and so loving. He will come to us over and over, even when we're unfaithful, and say, Remember my promises. Yeah. But we have to be faithful back. We can't treat God like some, I don't know, salesman at the door who just offers us stuff and we get annoyed by him, right? He's not a salesman. We have to be faithful back. God is the God of covenant. Okay, so this is the time that we take communion. And I want us to think about the words of Jesus. When Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And remember, covenants were made by drinking blood. And so Jesus knew about that. And he was trying to remind us how serious it is, the promises that we have. But it's also such a blessing to have the promises of Jesus and all the promises of God made true through him. And so as we think about communion and as we take communion, remember the faithfulness of Jesus and be inspired through his death on the cross to lay down your life for God and for others. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful that you are faithful to all your promises, that you have promised to bless all nations. And we don't know when that day will come, but we know that right now we are called to be a blessing to all nations by the blood of the new covenant, by the blood of Jesus who brings all people together, despite their religious or racial differences or ethnic, cultural, linguistic the blood of Jesus brings us all together. I pray that we can be grateful, that we can be joyous as we take communion. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.